Resistance is futile. Resistance is futile, but that does not keep me from trying. You would think after 45 years of marriage uh, that I would wise up and quit trying to resist Kay's initiatives in our life. Take, for instance, when she says something offhandedly like this. Honey, don't you think that sofa would look better on that wall? I resist that uh, by complaining, by ranting, even by raving. But the sofa gets moved to that wall <laughs> exactly where it belongs. Resistance is futile. And of course, uh, there are more important examples of things that aren't as, as frivolous as, as uh, the relocation is of, of a piece of furniture. Take it when Kay says something like, honey, I think I would call them. Or you don't have to say a thing, Pat. In those instances, I'm wise, I'm wise to listen to what she has to say. After all, resistance is futile, but it doesn't keep me over and over again from trying. On a much larger scale, Herod the Great should have known better, should have known better than trying to resist the initiative of God. But he doesn't, and he sure tries to. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the stage is set when Herod hears that there's a bevy of wise men from present-day Iran, from Persia, that are suddenly in his tiny kingdom of Israel. This disturbs him, so he summons them to the palace. And he asked them why they, why they ended up in his little kingdom, and they said, well, we've come here to find the newborn king and to worship him. Well, at this, Herod is filled with fear. Uh, and to make things worse, this group of wise men tell Herod they know this is God's initiative because they have seen a new star in the heavens as, a, as an omen that this is really God at work. And so at this point, Herod, though terribly afraid and the fear fuels his anger, he puts on his best political face and and uh, issues some civility and says, well, just tell me when and where you find the child so that I may be able to worship him too. Well, they don't call the wise men wise men for nothing. Uh, they hear from God again, and after they find the child and worship him and give him gifts, they go home by another way, eluding Herod and all his spies. Now, this does nothing other than increase the fear within Herod, and he becomes angrier and angrier. He is fuming inside. Now, we don't know exactly when he takes action, but sometime, sometime within a two-year period, he decides that he is going to murder all the children in the prophesied town where the child was to be born, Bethlehem. He's going to murder every one of them. 
two and younger. Now, Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, gets word from God, just like the wise men, that it's time to move out. And he takes his little family of Mary and Jesus, and they become refugees in Egypt in order to protect the child's life. Now, if that's not enough, Herod's, Herod's para, paranoid fear is passed on to at least one of his sons, Archelaus, who becomes almost as crazed as his father, but never really developed the political savvy. Eventually, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Holy Family gets word that it's coast clear to come home, but they have to avoid Archelaus's uh, dominion. He's been given the little portion of, of Israel that includes uh, Jerusalem uh, and Bethlehem. So the family, the first family, is not able to go back to Bethlehem where evidently they have, they have started a life. And they have to go to where Mary and Joseph met in Nazareth. And the child is raised there. Now, the story of Herod would make for a, a gripping cinematic tale. Uh, but really the story says as much about you and me as it does about Herod's dark psyche. You and I very often resist God's initiative in our life. We resist his initiative. Uh, and the question is, why? Now, the first thing that comes to mind is, what is God's initiative? What is God's initiative in yours and my life? His initiative is to love us completely and unconditionally. That's his initiative as revealed in Jesus Christ, is it not? To love us completely and unconditionally. Well, why in the world would we resist that? Well, because the only way to experience God's love in that way is to surrender. And to surrender is to give up control, isn't it? Yeah. Um, how long have we been resisting this type of, of, of entrees by the Lord? Well, for most of our history. You know, if you look at the history of our species, Homo sapiens, we've been on the earth somewhere between 200,000 and 300,000 years. If you look at the chronicles of our history and the, the religions we've developed, we've almost always developed religions such that we have to take steps to appease God. We like that, actually, because we're in control. If I take these steps, then God will approve of me and he will love me. Okay? And uh, if you read yesterday's meditation, as a matter of fact, in our little book we give out, it was the ancient Babylonians in about the year 1400 that came up with the idea of New Year's resolutions. They came up with that idea, 1400 BC, uh, they came up with that idea so that you would make a resolution at the beginning of the new year to appease the gods so they would have favor on you and love you. <laughs> How interesting that we're still caught up in that. 
that we think there are steps we have to take in order to make ourselves acceptable to God. Not only do we think that, we like that because we're in control and we're afraid of what might happen if we're not in control, right? Right. Now, in order to understand this better, I read some of the work of uh, that inscrutable Danish uh, Christian philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was, uh, you know, a 19th century oddball, but he thought very deeply about why we resist God's grace in our life. Why is the idea of grace so alien to human beings? That was very big for Kierkegaard. And he says there's three, there's three aspects of our fear that keep us from, ex from accepting God's initiative of love in our life. He said, first of all, fear occurs when the human spirit is afraid of itself. Fear occurs when the human spirit is afraid of itself. Number two, fear is often a substitute for guilt. And three, fear and guilt always inhibit love. Okay, you got that? Those are the three. Now, in the first case, in the first case, fear occurs when the human spirit is at war with itself. Now, most of us imagine that we're afraid of things outside of ourselves. We take Herod, for instance. You think Herod was afraid of a little baby that he never met, but he really wasn't. He was afraid of who he would be if he was not in power. That's where the fear was. It was inside him, right? He had been on the throne for 35 years. Who would I be if I'm not, the, if, if I'm not, if I'm not in power? And so the, the same is true for you and me. We often objectify things outside of ourselves, but really the fear is in here, and it locks us up. And so we begin to wonder, well, who will I be if I'm not the king of my little fiefdom, my little self? And that keeps us from letting God, allowing God to shower his love on us uh, that is completely unconditional. The second, Kierkegaard said, fear is often a substitute for guilt. Now, I don't know really if Herod felt much guilt or not. If you read the history of, of, of Herod the Great, it is pretty sordid. You could get out two, you could get out two legal pads and just list the people he murdered during his reign to include his wife and three of his sons, a brother-in-law and an uncle. <laughs> he had no mercy. He was going to stay in power. Whether he ever felt badly about that, I don't know. But, uh, but so there you go. But for us, it's a little, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a little uh, uh, more uh, subtle and a little deeper. Um, all of us have had, had those things occur in our lives that have hurt us deeply. Perhaps you were abused as a child. Perhaps you were abused as an adult. Uh, perhaps you had a sweetheart with, with whom you thought you were going to spend the rest of your life that, that deserted you. Maybe you've been fired from a job. Okay, all those things. And what happens, what happens is that we begin to think that we are, we are completely responsible for those things in our lives. Very rarely is that the case. Very rarely. We, can't, we take those things around. And what, 
happens in the midst of that is we begin to build walls around ourselves saying that's never going to happen to me again. And we're happier with the walls we think than the inbreaking of God's unconditional love in our lives. We begin to exist like that, don't we? Fear can be a substitute for guilt. And guilt always incarcerates. Always. Finally, finally, fear and guilt will always inhibit love. Fear and guilt will always inhibit love. We begin to build for ourselves a nice little box in which we can exist. It may be a little mis it may be a miserable box, but we we uh, will are satisfied with that uh, and terribly afraid of what will happen if God's love overwhelms us. Who? Oh my goodness! What will happen if God's love overwhelms me? <laughs> Who will I be? And so there we stay in that homeostatic place uh, that really is a prison. It's a prison. Now, what does God do in order to overcome our fears? Well, he becomes a human being. That's what happens. The, the gift of the incarnation, that means that God becomes a human being in Jesus Christ. God, the fullness of God, it it becomes, it enters our, our existence through Jesus Christ. And one of the great Christian psychologists right now, David Benner, says he, he is able then to go to reach across the chasm of our fears, across the chasm of our guilt, and reach us with his love. And it takes that. It takes that. We can be so entrenched so entrenched in that place where guilt and fear has had its way with us. He reaches across to us. That is the gift of the incarnation. Now, it's also important for us to just take a little bit of a look at the fact that Jesus uh, goes to Egypt. Uh, in Hosea 11, it says, Out of Egypt I've called my son. What an interesting portrait for us to, 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 to take hold of, especially as Episcopalians. So Jesus ends up as a refugee with Joseph and Mary, his parents in Egypt. Probably could, could have been there for up to two years or so. Uh, Joseph probably had to take up a trade there and try to make a life. So they're there, but they're called out of there, back to the land of promise. Of course, 1,400 years before, um, God intervened and called Israel out of bondage, right? That same place. <laughs> Don't, God knows what he's doing with this choreography. He's setting it up all again for us. Now, if you think about it, think about this just for a moment in terms of what I've been talking to you about. Israel is incarcerated in Egypt for 16 generations, 400 years, 1,600 People had forgotten what it was like to be free. 
People had lost all notion of the land of Israel. People had lost all hope. They were completely stuck just like you and me when we're stuck in fear and guilt. Can you see that? But God calls Israel out. Miraculously, they come out. They cross over the chasm of the Red Sea to freedom. Just like we're being called out of the prison of our guilt and our fear to receive God's initiative in our life. Let me leave you with this last little uh, important note. The fact that God loves us unconditionally will not change our lives. The fact that God loves us unconditionally will not change our lives. But the fact that we allow Him, the fact that we allow Him to come into our lives and love us that way, now that changes our life. That changes. So let's make a New Year's resolution. Let's let down the ramparts of our lives. Let's get over ourselves. Let's be brave enough to put aside the fear and the guilt. And let God's initiative have its way with us. Let's see what happens when God's love has its way with us.